I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's remarkable guest is Christy Yamaguchi. I'm on a Yamaguchi streak right now. To my knowledge, she is not related to Roy Yamaguchi, the chef and recent Remarkable People guest. She may not have won a James Beard Award, but she did win the Olympic Figure Skating Championship in 1992, as well as the World Championship in 1991 and 1992. She hasn't done bad in pairs, too. With Rudy Galindo, she won the 1988 World Junior Championship and the Pairs National Championship in 1989 and 1990. Since then, she's raised two daughters with her husband, professional hockey player, Brett Hedekin. Oh, and she won the 2008 Dancing with the Stars competition and started a foundation to help young people. You'd think that her daughters, with the DNA of an Olympic gold medalist and an NHL All-Star Stanley Cup winner, would both gravitate, if not rock, figure skating, and hockey. But you'll never guess what sport her oldest daughter has embraced. Keep listening to find out. Yamaguchi was born in Hayward, California. Her grandparents were interned during World War II, like 120,000 other Japanese and Japanese Americans. She is Sansei, third generation Japanese American. In a moment of weakness, she once agreed to teach me how to do a triple Lutz to celebrate scoring goals in pickup hockey. That never happened. I mean, she didn't teach me the triple Lutz, not that I never scored in pickup hockey. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. And now, here is Christy Yamaguchi. When I was born, my feet were very turned in, almost like my mom said my legs were crossed. And so immediately, about a few weeks after I was born, I was putting uh, casts on both legs. And every couple of weeks, the cast had to be replaced because of you, you're growing so fast at that age. And the object was to, to try to straight, straighten the uh, joints and the, the bottom parts of my legs out. And so I think that went on for about 18 months. And after that, I wore like a protect, uh, like these shoes with a, and a bar connected the shoes. So that turned out my, my legs and, and all, all the joints in my feet. So to further keep correcting them. So I do remember that. I do remember like crawling as a baby, like an army crawl because my legs had to just drag behind me. And, you know, I'm just trying to sleep with the, the bar between my, my feet. So, and my legs being sore, but I think I was just lucky that early on, my parents were just really proactive to, to get those corrections done. And eventually I asked to skate and the doctor's like, yeah, that should be fine. It actually will probably be good for her just to have some strengthening and coordination and, and all of that. So, so yeah, I don't really remember it and it probably wasn't so as severe as club feet, but more of just like a birth deformity. Do you think that if you didn't have club feet, you might not have become the Christy Yamaguchi you've become? Hard to say. I think by the time I started skating, the corrections were done and it was just a matter of trying the sport because I just really wanted to try it and then eventually developed a passion for it really, really early on. But I do say 
I've always been bow-legged and probably be remnants from from all of that. But in skating, it's it's almost a good thing. A lot of the good jumpers in our sport are slightly bow-legged. <laughs> so, you know, I say, well, you know, I think in the end it worked to my advantage. So, so now if all these Asian moms are going to listen to this and say, oh, to their daughters, oh, you have to have bow legs. So we need to... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hopefully not. I don't want to encourage. If you okay. don't have it, then you, you'll be fine without it. Okay, okay. okay. I, I read this story that you finished 11th out of 12th in your first competition. So, A, tell me about that story. And then that, that's not sort of this, this kind of story you hear that, oh, someone was instantly born with it and just instant success. There's pretty much no such thing as instant success, right? I mean, you really have to work for it and you have to put the time and, and the effort into it. So, so yeah, I was probably about seven years old at my first skating competition. And it's your first one. You don't really know what to expect. And I competed and the results came out. And I was 11th at a 12th. And it's funny because my mom always reminded me of that <laughs> as I was coming up as a skater. But at the same time, I was like, hey, why do those girls get medals and I don't? And seven years old, you, you see them, you know, they would wear their medals and kind of run around the rink and watch everyone else. And I was, I want one of those. So so next time, I think it made me determine like, hey, okay, next time I want to improve, I want to be better than 11th and hopefully be top three so I can get one of those medals. <laughs> I think you have adequately filled the medal box, right? So but, <laughs> by the way, where does one keep a gold medal? So the actual Olympic gold medal is in uh, Colorado Springs. It's at the U.S. Figure Skating Museum and Hall of Fame. So they have a really nice museum like Brian Boitano to Dorothy Hamill to Sonia Henney. They have a lot of memorabilia and costumes. And so they have my Olympic costume, the black and gold one, and also the gold medal. So that, that way it's on display. People can see it and see what it looks like, touch it. Maybe sometimes they let it out. <laughs> but but yeah, I do have a couple bowls of little medals throughout the years that have ac accumulated. <laughs> couple bowls? There's like at the U.S. championships, you if you win, you get like a silver bowl. So oh. I have one of those and a lot of my local medals, like regional championships and then sectional championships, the medals are in those bowls. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you meant they're like in a Tupperware bowl. <laughs> well, you ask a lot of Olympians and they're like, I think it's in my sock drawer or I think it's... I think it's somewhere in my bedstand table. It's funny how, I mean, somewhere it's in a bank. It's in a yeah. safety deposit box and, or it's on display somewhere. But a lot of them will be like, huh, where is that thing? <laughs> <laughs> Just surprising because it, it's a symbol and obviously it, it's something, it, it re represents something you really worked hard for. But in the end, I think the actual athlete, it's, you know, it's all in their in their mind in their memories of of that okay. experience what, what, what do you believe 
separated you from the thousands of other girls or and boys in figure skating. Oh the top of the funnel and at the bottom there's Christy Amaguchi. I loved it and I I think I was always very competitive. Even off the ice, it was like that competitive nature was just in me. And even though I was a very quiet and uh, very introverted, shy kid growing up, I think maybe that brought out the competitiveness in me because I don't know. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> I was just, the, for some reason, skating gave me the confidence to really go out there and work hard and, and try to do as much or more than some of the other skaters that I was practicing with. And that kind of fueled me every day in practice. We pushed each other and, and a lot of them are my closest friends even to this day, but it was just putting your program, the music on for your program and trying to get through the program with as little mistakes as you can and working on new jumps and things like that. So I think it was just the competitive nature in me, but then also I had an incredible coach, not only my very first coach when I was young, but uh, my latter coach when I was nine years old through the Olympics. And Christy Ness is her name, and she just instilled that really good, solid work ethic. And she'd always tell us, there's no secret to success. It's plain, simple, hard work. And she'd always tell us, if we weren't working hard enough, don't be afraid to work hard, you know, (laughs) a a little push out there while we were practicing. Yeah, so I mean, I think it was just knowing that you, in order to achieve what you wanted to and to make those improvements in your skating and learn something new you just you had to just work at it if you could can you assign sort of either priority or percentage to this hard work, perseverance versus talent versus luck? Like what's... Mm. Ooh, that's hard. And it's probably different in every life situation, right? But really in athletics, you see when you get to the cream of the crop, everyone has a certain amount of talent, I think. But it's those who've really dedicated themselves and who have had a certain amount of persistence because, you know, everyone's going to face challenges and tough situations and disappointments along the way. And it's those who kind of pick themselves up and keep pushing forward, whether it's an injury or it's a bad performance at a competition or, or, or just something else, bad luck. Um, you know, you got to pick yourself up and keep going and keep believing. So I don't know. I always felt like it was because I didn't, I never felt like I had the natural talent that talent maybe, I don't know, 20, 30%. But if you don't have that passion and that love and put the work in, it, you're, you're not going to make it. So there is some luck, I would say a little bit, a small percentage, probably maybe five to 10% because it's luck of not getting injured and luck of not being sick or something the day of competition. But then if the work is there, if the foundation is there, that's way over 50%. It's, it's close to that 70 to 80%. To get more tactical about your persistence and perseverance, what was your schedule like training? 
before you turned pro? I mean, or as a kid, mm -hmm. what was it, what was your schedule like? It was a little crazy. And, and as a mom now, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know how my mom did this. <laughs> But I was on the ice by 5 a.m. I mean, pretty much from fifth, sixth, seventh grade through high school, 5 a.m. till 9 to, and then as I got older till about 10 or 11. And, you know, it was four to five to six hours on the ice a day. And then go, going to school, getting the schoolwork done. Obviously, with that schedule, I did have an adjusted schedule at school. But, but yeah, it was very early mornings because that's when the ice was available. What, did you go to public school? I did go to public school. And back then, I don't even want to say what, like 30, 40 years ago, it was schools were a little more flexible. So I did do half independent study. So about six classes at home and then or not six classes, sorry, three classes at home and then three classes on campus. So, you know, I was able to experience a little bit of school life. And then by arriving late, I just had to do those last three classes through independent study after school. I obviously know this, but you're married to a ex-NHL player, Stanley mm -hmm. Kupner, all-star, all the good stuff. Was his youth any different than that? Was he practicing hockey five hours a day? Is that just what it takes to achieve the pinnacle in sports? It's hard to say. I mean, every sport is different. And I always say, oh, I, I know I wasn't normal because at six years old, I just, I knew my path. And I think it's hard to find that. Although I tried to do other activities as well. But Brett, what I would say, he grew up in Minnesota. So Whether you liked it or not, you were going to play hockey, <laughs> at least recreationally or something. But he'll tell stories about every neighborhood had their, their one outdoor rink on the block that someone prepared. So he would just go there and that would be his playtime, really. And his mom would drive by, throw his lunch on the snowbank and, you know, go back home and say, be home by dark. So for him, it was it was their their playtime and they just loved it. And then eventually, you know, in high school, he started, he was playing multiple sports still in high school, like football and golf and hockey. But then his junior and senior year, I think that's when he started to focus more on hockey because there was a chance of a possible scholarship. So it was probably a little bit different from, from him. It sounds like you made more of a sacrifice than him. <laughs> right? I mean, well, yeah, you didn't get up at 5 a.m. to go play hockey, practice hockey. Well, but you know, you you play hockey, so you know on the weekends for tournaments or whatever, you got to get up and travel or whatever. So they definitely did all of that. But he probably had more of a normal schedule from like yeah. high school and social life and, and all of that. So wh while we're on the subject of hockey, uh, so this can be the last hockey question. Yes, I play hockey. And I know that there's, let's say, a contentious relationship between hockey players and figure skaters over yeah. ice time and hockey moms just abhorring <laughs> hockey players around their daughters and stuff like that. So was there any kind of Michelle Kwan freaking out that, oh, my God, Christy is dating a hockey player? I mean, <laughs> did you get any of that? <laughs> I really got much of that. I think it was 
I mean, some of my friends, like my skating friends were laughing and, you know, at the, the time Brett and I started dating was literally when that movie, The Cutting Edge was out. And that was about the figure skater and the hockey player who turned it to be a figure skater because his hockey career was over from an injury or something. <laughs> so it was uh, kind of funny, like people just made fun of us in a way that way. But at the same time, we explained or it, it was pretty obvious that we had similar lifestyle styles focused on our professional careers, living on the road, traveling a lot. But knowing we had just a short window for that professional side of our sport and and then hopefully seeing what's beyond that later on. <laughs> but yeah, it, okay. some people were probably like, what? Hockey player? But it, when you look at it, it's, it's really similar lifestyles. This is my last question that involves Brett at all, okay? So... <laughs> I don't mind. It's, it's fine. It's, <laughs> it seems to me that... Your daughters have the best DNA in the world to be either figure skaters or hockey players, right? If you said, okay, so you have the combination of Christy Yamaguchi's DNA and someone who was the fastest skater in the NHL and played on a Stanley Cup team, that's the DNA of these two girls. These two girls will be the first <laughs> girls to play in the NHL. Tell me, do they do anything on the ice? Is, is there any possibility of seeing them figure skating or hockey? You know, it's funny because you would think that and people are like, oh, <laughs> were they born with skates on? And it's like, uh, yeah, no. I think each person has to find their own individual path. And, you know, we definitely put both of them on skates early on and we're like, okay, you're going to take group lessons and at least learn how to skate forward, skate backwards, at least be competent in that. And then you do what you want. If you want to quit, that's fine. So our older daughter, Kira, after her two months of group lessons and she completed, she's like, okay, no more. I'm like, fine. <laughs> She's like, I don't want to have anything to do with ice. And I was like, okay, totally fine. And she was really clear. Like she just knew that it wasn't for her. And she's actually the very opposite now. She's actually hula dancer. <laughs> yeah. So she is, that's, that's one of her main passions has been hula. She's been dancing for over almost 12 years now. And uh, they even do competitions and really? a lot of performances. Yeah. So, so you're, you're a hula mom? Is that what I, you're trying to tell me? Yeah, I am a hula mom. So she can, she can probably challenge you on some of her Hawaiian language. Like she, I, she knows quite a bit. And, and Brett is a hula dad driving a minivan? He's a hula dad. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we got lots of costumes and adornments, lays and everything we, we have to make for the competition. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, but then Emma, our younger one, she actually does skate. She's been skating for probably eight years now, eight or nine years, but more for fun and recreational. Like She enjoys it, but it's not her her one path like it was for me. Does she compete? Uh, she does. Yeah, she, she competes and she's made it up to the, she's now going up into the intermediate 
level. So still early stages, but you know, she's hoping to go through her testing. So to go through and advance through the different levels of testing, the highest <laughs> level is a gold, gold test. And she's only a few tests away from that. So that'll be nice if she can accomplish that. Are you coaching her or do you just drop her off in Starbucks? <laughs> That's what I would like to do. <laughs> just, coach her no, or go to Starbucks? No, yeah, go to Starbucks. I, I don't coach her. Actually, her coach is Rudy Galindo. Her uh, coach is Rudy Galindo? Yes, yeah, yeah. My, to be Christie's daughter. Yeah, yeah. So he's been her coach from the very beginning. And it, it's just better because I'm just mom to her. And it's sometimes it's hard to take feedback or instructions from your mom and she just wants my support so I try to do my best to to take a step back and be there for her but yet not push her because it, it's got to be her own thing. Can you tell me what your pre-competition routine would be that you wake up in the morning you're competing in the olympics what happens Ooh, so yeah it would kind of be a day of walking on eggshells it seems like look remembering back at those times and so much of that that you know those few minutes in that day a lot of preparation went goes into that right so on that particular day i would just Hopefully, I've gotten a good night's sleep and rested. A lot of times, there would be a warm-up session that you could go get ready and, and warm your muscles up before the actual competition. So I would go there and have a very pretty set routine of um, you know the elements to warm up and what sections of the program to possibly run through. And then I'd go home, back to the hotel or home or wherever and take like a, a nap. <laughs> I mean, if there was time and, and typically at the higher levels, the competitions back then were live TV. So we, we would have the whole afternoon. So I'd go back, have a good meal. Usually my pre competition meal was like some kind of pasta and uh, orange juice. I know people would be like, ew, how can you have orange juice with your pasta? Um, but that was it. And, and then I'd take like a two hour nap and then just get ready, get up and get ready, be focused, really do a lot of visualization of my performance and then get to the rink about an hour, hour and a half before competition time to warm up, do a lot of off ice warm up, like jogging and jumping, jumping rope. And then again, walking through the actual routine on the floor. And even in my mind, if I was like, oh, I kind of made a mistake, I would have to like start all over <laughs> until it was done exactly how I wanted it to be done. And then go out and compete. And then after the competition, do you and your coach sit down and watch every second of what you did? No. Interesting enough, she was pretty good at. Immediately after, it's probably too emotional to, to do much other than, you know, unless it went really well, it was just like, okay, that was great. <laughs> but if there were mistakes, maybe later that night or, or the next day or whenever, or even if we waited till we got home and started training again, then she, she would bring up, okay, you know, the sow cow which was usually the jump I missed, uh, you know, you swung the arms a little bit, let's work on, you know, you know, the technique there so that you're not swinging so much on the jump or something like that, where usually after, I mean, it, it, it was usually pr pretty obvious 
if there was a mistake made and, and kind of what went wrong with it. But once in a while, I mean, I would always usually, if there was a recording of it, go back and watch it. And usually on my own, because, <laughs> you know, it's hard to have someone else pointing something out when yeah. you could clearly see it pretty easily. Did, did, did your parents come to competition and afterwards start coaching you or yelling you instructions and all that? I wouldn't say yelling, <laughs> but sometimes my mom would be like, oh, I guess that was maybe a little bit slow tonight. She, she kind of always had that <laughs> passive aggressive thing going where it's like, oh, maybe you didn't jump so high today, right? <laughs> or something. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, 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 I know. I mean, sometimes she wouldn't say anything because she just knew she would have to wait or whatever. But they were always there for support. My dad didn't really know what a spin was versus a jump versus something else in our mm -hmm. movement. So he would just be like, okay, all right, how are you <laughs> feeling? But my, my mom being the one who was the one that primarily took me in the mornings and would watch and knew the sport, sometimes would give feedback, but it was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, there was a time when you were competing and in any given competition, you were both in singles and doubles. Is there a difficult transition? So here you are doing your singles routine and then you have to pair up with somebody. Is that a like major mental transition during a competition? It wasn't so much a mental, comp uh, uh, you know, challenge, I guess. One, my pair partner was Rudy Galindo and we had started our partnerships when we were so young. I was 11 and he was 13. So we really were like brother and sister and we had just a, a really natural connection. So he was a very strong, already a novice national champion by the time we started skating together. And I was kind of one level behind him. But we were known as just two really strong single skaters who paired up together and made a fairly strong pair team just because of our strengths as uh, individual skaters. I think we had unusual training routine only because we did focus so much on our individual training because we were still competing singles. So we would spend maybe two-thirds of our time training our singles competition elements. And then we would get together and literally skate an hour a day together, which for that level of competition is almost unheard of. But even though we were skating probably four hours a day, only an hour of that was maybe was was together as a team. So we, we were able to do a lot in a little amount of time. So the training wasn't wasn't hard, but it, competitions, it was more difficult because of the schedule of the competition. And at our last couple of years competing together, both of us were competing five days out of the competition in a row or sometimes competing two events in one day, which is, is really, really hard. I mean, good thing we were young, <laughs> <laughs> but it did start taking its toll as we got to the world level and the stakes were higher, there was more pressure. So unfortunately, it did get to a point where one had to give to the other because it just... It, to be able to compete at the top world level in both events was, uh, you don't see it ever happen. <laughs> okay. I 
interviewed a guy named Sean Thompson. And Sean Thompson in the 70s and 80s was the best surfer in the world. He, maybe to this day, he's the best surfer in in the tube, if you know what the tube is, where the oh, wave Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is North Shore and all that. So best surfer in the world. And he told me that when he's in the tube, time slows down. He feels like he can control the water mm-hmm. and he's totally in the flow of things, right? So I want to ask you, when you're doing a triple Lutz, is does time slow down? Do you feel like you can control how far you're flying? You can control all these elements. Are you defying physics? I mean, what, what's is it a religious experience to do something like that? There are not every time <laughs> it's like that, but there's maybe a rare occasion that you have an experience like that in in competition. I mean, I've had it maybe a few times where, yeah, you you're going through your routine and you just feel solid and confident, and things do slow down, and you feel like, okay, I could take my time on making sure every detail is looked after, and you have the energy. In those moments, you finish your routine, and it's like, oh, that was so easy. Like, I'm not even breathing hard. It just flowed. It felt natural. And um, I guess, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's what they say now where you're so in the moment that the focus is there. And I think that's what really carries you through it. But there are other times where it's almost like an out-of-body experience. And you're trying to get to that centered, very calming state but there's almost panic kind of around you and actually one perfect example is like actually in the olympics i had missed i had put my hands down on one of my best jumps and it was a a mistake i typically never make like i don't think i've ever missed that particular jump in competition ever so it was it kind of threw me off and it was toward the end of my program and then as i was going into my very last triple jump it was a triple let's jump i was almost in a panic like oh my gosh i cannot miss this jump <laughs> i was thinking all the wrong things when i tell skaters i'm like okay as you're skating and you jump think only positive things like the speed like skate fast like go for it and i was thinking all the wrong things like oh my gosh i can't miss this like don't fall and, and all the negative things And as I jumped, I was in the air going, oh my gosh, I'm gonna fall. I took off totally wrong and I'm gonna fall. And I'm thinking this in the air and somehow I landed on my feet and I landed the jump. And I look back on the video now and it's like, wow, it actually was a decent jump. It wasn't horrible. (laughs) It wasn't my best, but it, didn't look like what it felt like and like in my mind I was just I totally messed up and it's gonna cost me yeah so there are moments in that when you're it's almost out of body and you feel like you can't you're trying to control your body but you almost can't before you take off for a jump Are you thinking, okay, Christy, keep your hands this way, bend your knee this way, remember to do... Are you thinking all that kind of stuff or you just jump? 
To a degree, you're thinking of that. And a lot of times it's because that's how I train. Like into each of the jumps in the routine, like every single crossover was on the same beat of music and, you know, with the music and going into a jump, a lot of times I would say the things that would help keep the jump technically sound. So yeah, I would say like shoulders down, check the arms, reach back far enough. I mean, just kind of those last minute things that my coach would remind me when I would go into a jump. Can we switch completely to dancing with the stars? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. Did you learn anything from that? Tell us about that experience. Very fun experience. It, it was one of the hardest things. I mean, obviously Olympics and all of that is, is, in its own category because it was a lifetime pursuit, right? That was a lifetime dream I was going after. And Dancing with Stars was 10 weeks long as reality TV, but it was exhausting. Like it was definitely a challenge mentally, physically, and emotionally. I was ready for the physical part because it's dancing and I knew, okay, this is going to take a lot out of my body. I got to be ready to work hard, get back into that mode of physically training. But it was the emotional mental part where that, where that gets hard. And I think you, you see the athletes that go on the show, a lot of them do pretty well. And I think that's because they're able to pull those things together when, when the time counts, right? You know, when, when they're called upon, it's like, okay, whether you're ready or not, you got to just pull your act together and, and, and do it. But but it, it it was a fun experience. It was tough, but if you have a rapport with your partner, and Mark Ballas was my partner, and we got along really well and made it fun, then it's it's a pretty cool experience. But what is emotionally tough about Dancing with the Stars? So yeah, it's funny because okay, you're like, oh, it's reality TV. Come on, you can't take it too serious. But once you get into it, and once you're kind of invested in the time that you're practicing. And, you know, if you make a mistake, or if you feel like you're letting your professional partner down in any way, then emotionally, and you're just, you're just so exhausted, so that your emotions are just a lot more fragile than I think they normally are. And then as the weeks go on, you know, by week six, you're learning two full dances, and sometimes an additional group dance, in in a matter of a few days and again you're learning something that is completely foreign to you so the professional dancer's like okay do this step this step this arm and turn around and dip and blah 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 and you're just like your brain almost is like hit its max (laughs) or at least mine did of like taking things in and retaining it that I would do it once and then I couldn't do it again and he's just like you just did it and I'm like I know I just I have no idea how I did it. I, I can't even tell you what steps I'm supposed to do. Your mind has to be back in that learning mode. And when you're learning so much so quickly, it gets, it gets tough. I understand Ooh. everything you said to the extent that I can understand <laughs> winning Dancing with the Stars. But you, you didn't just compete. I mean, you won the thing, right? <laughs> I mean, how many people have a gold medal and that? So... <laughs> Is it just the Yamaguchi touch? Is it just perseverance? What is it? I think it was like, hey, if I'm going on this show, 
you know, at first I was like, oh, don't worry about it. Just have fun. And, you know, Brett was like, don't even do it unless you're going to have fun because why stress yourself out? Why, you know, if you take it too serious, then it's no fun to watch and then no one's going to vote for you. So I was like, good point. So I don't know, once you get into it and, you know, again, I had just such a great partner that he pushed me and I was open to being pushed and to being coached where it's, all right, you got to do what the judges told you last week. Because every, after you dance, they always give a criticism and we really took it to heart. So each week we tried to come back addressing what the judges had talked about. And, and that's not always easy, right? It's sometimes easy to more let it get you down on the negative side. But, but yeah, you know, those competitive juices got going again and it was like, okay, well, if I've been here for six weeks, I need to get to the end. <laughs> so, so this, you were basically were Hollywood for six weeks. You live there? Like 10 weeks. So yeah, I mean, my kids, they were two and four at the time. So luckily they were able to come out and stay with me. A lot of people do have to kind of combine their regular work schedule with that, but I was lucky to be in a position where I was able to just focus on on Dancing with the Stars at the time. So we had a, a revolving door of help that came in, whether it was my mom or Brett's mom, my sister and Brett's sister. So like every week there was someone there to kind of help with the kids. And, and you know, was this? Yeah, it was in Hollywood. Yeah. And what, did Brett play Mr. Mom at all? Or Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Sorry. So for the first few weeks, he was actually still in season, and he was playing with the Carolina Hurricanes at the time. So once the season ended, then he was able to come out and, mm. and be Mr. Mom. Yeah. <laughs> and is, is this the season that they won the cup? It was the year after. So, or actually two years later, because oh. they won the cup in 06, and this was 2008. Completely switching gears. Tell me about the Always Dream Foundation. What's your goal there? Why'd you do it? So after the Olympics, you know, I was 20 years old and I knew that I was very lucky to have had the support around me, the family, the community that allowed me to just to chase a dream, really chase the American dream, really. And my mom and dad, I think, were a huge influence on me. And, and I remember her asking me, okay, well, what are you going to do to give back? <laughs> you know, it's just kind of one of those things. They were active in the community and they felt like, okay, you, you owe it now to give something back. And I was just like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, in the tour, I joined Stars on Ice after the Olympics. The beneficiary of the tour was the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And that was my first time really working hands-on with a nonprofit and, and the, the actual beneficiaries, the families, and made such an incredible connection with several of the families, but one in particular. And I think that really opened up my eyes of the power of being able to do something uh, positive for a family or to affect someone in a positive way. And so that inspired me to start the Always Dream Foundation. And it was really, in a sense, to hopefully create a legacy that it's great to win an Olympic gold medal, but what other kind of legacy can you leave behind that really makes a difference in the world in a positive way? So I always wanted to focus on children, and that's what we've been doing, focusing on underserved 
uh, children in underserved communities. And since 2012, we've been focused on early childhood literacy. What does the foundation actually do? We have reading programs that target uh, low-income kindergarten students and their families. So we really connect the school environment to the home. In school, the kids are getting the support, right? The teachers are there, but we really want to give empower the families to have the tools and everything to help their child succeed in school and, and basically read to them. So we give children tablets that are loaded with an application of access for to thousands of books. We curate a library for them and create a curriculum of just setting up a reading reading routine at home with a lot of parent engagement. So we text message the parents three times a week with reminders and tips. We're collecting uh, the data from the tablets of each of the students to see how their adoption rate is of the program, how much they're reading, how many minutes a day they're reading, and have a protocol with our, our book coach who is monitoring all of this to reach out to those kids who, who are the families who look like they need a little extra support or, or something. So it's really providing the tools for them to, to use at home, but also the family engagement, education and training to, to really help those that need the support at home. And that, that's the basis of their education and their success. That's great. While we're on the subject of education, this is probably my last question. You 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 did not attend college? Correct. Yeah. No. Do you have I, any thoughts about that looking back? Always. I mean, I would say, you know, when people ask, like, what's your one, do you have any regrets? And, you know, I've always tried to live life like no regrets. Like in yes. training, you leave it on the table and you might make a mistake, but hey, at least I went for it. And I think the one regret I have is is not finishing school. I took a few classes, but nothing, not getting my degree is probably one that I always look back on. And right after the Olympics, I joined the skating tour. And again, as an athlete, knowing that window was going to be very short of being able to participate as a professional athlete. So I I took it and ran with it and kept saying, oh, school will always be there. I can always go back to school. And here I am almost 30 years later. So who knows? I'm not dead yet, so you know the door hasn't closed completely. I was inspired by seeing this story on a 86-year-old woman who just got her degree, and I was like, "Oh, that's inspiring!" So maybe uh, that's one more goal I can have out there in life. (laughs) Knowing you, Christy, if you decide to go back to college, (laughs) you are going to graduate summa cum laude and be class president and. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, well, I wouldn't go that far, but, you know, hopefully I can <laughs> at least get there. I would go that far. Uh, <laughs> this has been just delightful. So I, I've asked everything I want to ask, and I think lots of people are going to listen to this and get the message. It's about perseverance and discipline and hard work and competitiveness, and that's kind of the secret to Christy Yamaguchi's remarkableness, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, we'll see. Still a work in progress, I think. <laughs> but, you know, I do have to say thank you because you've been a big a mentor and supporter through the years. And I, I remember meeting you shortly after the Olympics and you've had a lot of good advice through the years. So, you know, thank you for that. I just remember oh, come on. going to your dinners and stuff and loving it. But OK. Yeah,
I hope you enjoyed this interview of my friend and erstwhile figure skating instructor, Christy Yamaguchi. Now you know that if hula becomes an Olympic sport, you may see her oldest daughter bring home another gold. Christy's story is one of years of sacrifice and hard work. The power of grit is the theme that we've heard over and over on this podcast. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. My thanks to the gold medal winning pair of Jeff C. and Peg Fitzpatrick for helping me complete this and every episode. And Brett, if you're listening to this, Scott Hannon and I invite you to go surfing this summer. Be healthy, be safe, wash your hands, maintain a distance of at least six feet. Although my theory is, if someone sneezes or coughs, you hold your breath and get away. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.